good evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3, the third chapter of Proverbs. In God's providence, our study through Proverbs has landed us at chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 this evening, which deal with how we use our money. Specifically, they deal with how we give our money back to the Lord. And it's useful for us to consider these things now. Many of us are in the season of making evaluations of last year, making plans for how we want to order our lives this year, making resolutions about how we want to improve our lives in the days ahead. And so tonight I want to take these two verses and use them as a launch pad to survey what the Bible as a whole says about our giving back to the Lord. And we'll see, among other things, that our giving reveals our heart, our giving is a means of worship, and that Christian giving both begins and ends with God. So let's begin by reading in Proverbs chapter 3. I'll begin reading at verse 5 and go through 10. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats bursting with wine. Let us pray. Holy Father, we are listening to your word, and we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to illumine this text, that you would remove the blinders of sin that are over our eyes and remove the impediments that are in our rocky and stony hearts, Lord. We pray that you would make us more into the image of your Son, even this night. In Christ's name, amen. Before we examine the the what of what the Bible says about our giving to the Lord, I'd like to first address the question of why. Why should we talk about this? Why should we talk about money? That's like politics, right? It's explosive. We don't want to talk about that, especially in the church. Why should we talk about tithing and offerings and giving? Well, I, I think we should for several reasons. First, our giving reveals our heart. Our giving reveals our heart. And this connection Jesus makes perfectly in Matthew 6 21 when he says where your treasure is there your heart will be also if we give generously sacrificially regularly to the Lord we demonstrate that our heart is with the Lord and that we're not bound up with the love of this world and materialistic prosperity conversely if we never give to the Lord or if we give to him grudgingly sparingly what does that reveal about our heart? We'll talk more about that later, but for now I just want to highlight the connection between our giving to the Lord and our heart. Secondly, our, our giving not only reveals our heart, but it reveals our true theology. right? Not, not merely the theology we might say or have up in our heads, it reveals what we believe to be true about our theology. John Stott wrote once regarding this tendency of our giving to reveal our theology. He says, our Christian giving can express our theology because our gift symbolizes our support of the cause to which we're giving. 
For example, when we contribute to evangelistic enterprises, we are expressing our confidence that the gospel really is the power of God for salvation and that everyone has a right to hear it. When we contribute to mercy ministries, we express our belief that every man, woman, and child bears the image of God and should not be obliged to live in dehumanizing circumstances. And when we give to the maturing of the church, we acknowledge its centrality in God's purpose and his desire for its maturity. We could go on in other areas of our theology that are revealed by our giving, but for the sake of time, I will move on. Not only does our giving reveal our heart and our true theology, but we know that the Bible teaches on these things because our giving is an act of worship. Our giving is an act of worship, or at least it should be. Our text makes clear that we are to honor the Lord with our wealth, which is the same language used of sacrifices in the Old Testament law. We're not merely paying homage to God. We're not merely showing that we think He's important. We're not merely giving mental assent to the fact that, well, I know he does own everything, and I guess I'm required to give this back to him. There's supposed to be a heart-level submission, a worshiping when we're giving back to God. And that's why Paul expects the churches to take up an offering on every Lord's Day. And that's why the church has historically included a time of offering within the worship services. It's not worldly or crass for us to talk about money. Rather, what we do with our money can be an exceedingly spiritual and worshipful experience. An experience that reveals the health of our heart and the authenticity of our theology. And so now that we've briefly introduced why we should talk about these things, let's look and see what the Bible teaches about these things. And we'll start in the Old Testament. Before the law of Moses, we have two examples of people giving a tithe, which means 10%, a tenth. First, Abram in Genesis 14. This is hundreds of years before the Mosaic law was given. He gives 10% to Melchizedek, 10% of everything he had won in battle. And this offering reflects Abram's belief that Melchizedek was a priest of the true God. Later in Genesis 28, Jacob makes a vow to give God a full tenth of everything that God gives to him. He voluntarily gives up a tenth of everything that God bestows upon him. And later, God, through Moses, commanded his people to pay 10% of their income to the Lord. Why all this 10%? Well, it might be that everybody has 10 fingers, and figuring out what a tenth means is pretty, is, is pretty simple, right? If I have 10 cows... Then I take one of those ten, the best one, and I give that to God. If I have ten bushels of grain, I take the first one, the best one, and I give it to the Lord. There were other supplemental tithes in the law of Moses tied to specific situations, but the 10% tithe was universal. It was a clear standard. And these tithes were largely used to support the Levites, the religious teachers and priests of the day. The tribe of Levi, you see, was not given an inheritance in the land because God clearly said that the Levites would be given the tithes of Israel as their inheritance. That meant that because the priests were called to work in the temple daily, because they had to administrate the sacrifices and the purification rituals, 
They were not able to be full-time farmers or merchants or herdsmen or businessmen like the rest of Israel. So God provided for them an inheritance through the giving of tithes through the nation of Israel. You can look on your own time at Leviticus 27 and Numbers 18 if you'd like to read more about these tithes. So thus far in the Old Testament, we see two patriarchs voluntarily giving a tithe. And we see the tithe officially codified into Old Testament law. So does the, New, does the Old Testament have anything else to say about the tithe? It certainly does. The Old Testament speaks several times about Israel's failure to give their tithe. Israel was unfaithful in its tithing. And because of that, the Levitical priests had to leave the sanctuary and enter into the fields in order to support themselves by farming. And that let the sanctuary fall into disrepair. We see the reforms that took place under Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles 31. Under Nehemiah and under Malachi, all these reforms speak to this. And because of the calls of these men, calls for reform, the people were once again giving a proper tithe. The sanctuary was restored and the priests and the Levites were able to again give themselves wholly to the law of the Lord. And so we see at the close of the Old Testament a standing obligation to the tithe. And we see Israel's repeated failure to give the required tithe to the Lord. What about the New Testament? What does Jesus say about tithing? And what's our obligation now? Well, I can tell you the New Testament says actually very little about tithing. But it does have a lot about giving and about money. And as it relates to tithing in particular, I want to make a couple of observations. First, tithing is not stated as an abiding obligation in the New Covenant. Tithing is nowhere in the New Testament listed as an abiding obligation. And that's significant. And it's actually surprising. If Paul, right, an Orthodox, purebred Jew, he calls himself the Hebrew of Hebrews, if he doesn't say a peep about tithe, that's significant. You would suppose that if the weekly tithe was still in effect, he would have mentioned it. He's not afraid to talk about money. He talks about it several times in great detail. Uh, who should handle the money and how we're going to transfer this money and about how often we should give and what that giving should look like. Seems like if that 10% was still into effect, he would have mentioned that. But he doesn't mention it or he doesn't prescribe it or even mention it again. So tithing is not stated as an abiding obligation. But we can also observe that while tithing is not stated as an explicit obligation, neither does it explicitly lay it aside. Neither does the New Testament explicitly lay aside the tithe. We're nowhere explicitly freed from the expectation that a tenth of our wealth would be returned to the Lord. Jesus doesn't explicitly say that. Paul doesn't say that. And so from these things, I would argue, I would conclude that since tithing is stated not as an obligation in the New Testament, nor is it laid aside, I think it's reasonable to assume that the giving pattern in the New Testament would more than equal the giving pattern under the Old Covenant. I think that since tithing is not stated as an obligation, nor is it laid aside, I think it's reasonable to assume that the giving pattern of the New Testament Christian would more than exceed the giving pattern under the Old Covenant. I say that normally. Normally that would be the case. I'll come back to this principle, but 
The general understanding is this. If believers were required to give 10% under the law, how much more are we freed and motivated under grace to give? So if somebody comes to me, a new Christian perhaps, and they, don't, they haven't given anything, and they're wondering where should I start, 10% might be a good place to start. If you can't quite do that, that's okay. Work your way up to it. If you could give more than that, pray about it and see what the Lord would have you do. You're free to do that. And so in order to better flesh out some of these things, I want to zoom out and try and go through a few relevant passages in Scripture and give us 11 biblical principles tonight to guide our Christian giving. I know that's a lot. We'll make it through it. I tried to make it 10 so it would match a tithe, but I couldn't do it. So we're going to do 11. 11 biblical principles to guide our Christian giving. First principle in the passage that Billy read earlier, the principle is that everything belongs to God. Everything. Everything belongs to God. The psalmist says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Not part of the earth, the fullness of the earth. The world and those who dwell within. So not merely stuff, but those people on the earth. All of those things belong to the Lord. And this knowledge of who really owns what is significant, right? If God really owns everything, then me giving to him something is really me just giving back to him what is already his. Right? I'm not enriching God. God's not so much better off that I'm on his team, right? I'm giving him some money back. You're welcome, God. Right? I'm merely returning to him a portion of what he has generously given me for the time being. The master is receiving back from a steward that which was loaned to him. And that principle kind of puts us in our place a little bit. I might think I'm hot stuff because of how much money I gave last year. But God doesn't need my giving. God's not impressed with how much stuff I have or how much money I have in the bank. Or how much money I gave away even. God's concerned with my heart. And that leads to the second principle for giving. If we give God our whole being, everything we are, then our money will follow. If you give yourself entirely to God, your money will follow. If you're a Christian, then you're saying that you have devoted your whole life to God. You have submitted yourself to Christ in every way. Paul uses the language of us being living sacrifices. Of us being slaves to Christ. We are not our own, but... We belong, body and soul, to another, namely Jesus Christ. And if we submit ourselves completely to God, if we give Him priority over every area of our lives, including our finances, then the money will naturally flow where it needs to go. If a husband loves his wife completely and wholeheartedly, then he will freely give all of himself to her. He will hold nothing back. He will do whatever it takes to make sure she is cared for and honored. How much more should... We hold nothing back. No area of our life from God. The God who saved us from hell. If we give ourselves completely to God, then our money will naturally follow. 
Third, third principle of Christian giving. Christian giving can be a spiritual gift. Did you know that giving is one of the gifts listed given by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament? In Romans 12, right after Paul tells the Romans to present their bodies as living sacrifices of worship to God, he lists giving among the spiritual gifts. Some people are supernaturally gifted by the Holy Spirit to be just naturally inclined towards generosity and faithfulness in the area of giving to the Lord. Now, just because a spirit, something is a spiritual gift does not excuse everyone else from giving, right? Oh, that's not my gift. I'm just not, not going to give anymore. We don't, we don't get the chance to do that. That's nonsense. Each of us are called to press on in the Christian life and to grow in these areas, but we need to understand that some people have been given an extra measure of gifting in this area. Just like some people are better teachers, some people are better uh, at acts of mercy, some people are better encouragers, some people are better givers. And so if you find yourself struggling in this area, I'm sure many of us are, if you rarely give, if you give inconsistently, if you find it hard, you're kind of, don't want to let go, then I would encourage you to seek the Lord about this, but also to seek out mature brothers and sisters in the church. Look around and find generous people in the church and talk to them. Talk to them about giving. Talk to them. Find out what they think about it. When did you start? Give, like, did you, did you work your way up or did you just start off being this generous? Like, how did that happen? Did you, were you led to do this or do you just, you know, what's your system? Do you have a budget? Like, how do you think about these things? Right? Talk to people. It's, they're not going to, you don't have to say, now exactly how much did you make last year? Like, you don't have to have, talk like that. But think about, like, how, well, how do you process these things? How, can, how do you think I could grow in generosity? How could I grow in faithfulness in this area? It may be a spiritual gift, but we all want to continue to grow in this area. And notice I didn't say seek out the rich people and talk to them about that. I said seek out the generous person. Rich people can sinfully love money just as much as poor people. Poor people can be even more generous than some rich people. Look to people that are generous with their time, with their ear, right, with their money. And seek out them. Ask them questions. And pray that the Lord would help you grow in that area. Fourth. Fourth principle of New Testament giving. This should be evident by this sermon, but I'll say it anyway. Christian giving is important. Christian giving to the Lord is important. I'll make this point by reminding you of what Paul does at the end of 1 Corinthians. You could turn there if you'd like. We're going to stay in 1 Corinthians for a little bit. But Paul, at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, takes the church at Corinth up to the mountain peaks of theology. We are soaring high in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. He's talking about the resurrection of Christ. He's talking about the resurrection of of believers, he's talking about what their resurrected bodies will be like. And he ends that chapter on such high notes of, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Really glorious stuff. 
And then where does he go? Very next two verses. Starts talking about money. Starts talking about the collection that will take place on the first day of every week for the helping of believers in Jerusalem who are suffering under famine. So what we do with our money is not a carnal thing. It's not unrelated to the high-level theology of our confession. Right? They're very much related. One flows from the other, and therefore what we do with our money is important to God. So Christian giving is important. Next, staying in 1 Corinthians 16, we can see a fifth principle to guide our giving. Christian giving should be regular. Christian giving should be regular. It should be patterned. Paul says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, chapter, or verse 2, he says, On the first day of every week, they're to take up a collection. So by this time in the New Testament church's short history, Christians had a pattern of meeting every Lord's Day. That is, every Sunday for a time of worship and fellowship. And it's expected, it's a natural time for the collection to take place. Everybody's together. And this collection needs to be regular because the needs are regular. The poor need to be fed regularly. Children need to be clothed. Orphans need to be cared for daily. And so the collection needed to be regular so that the regular needs could be met. And the same is true today. Local churches in every part of the world and in every culture still have regular needs that need to be met. The poor needs to be fed. The light bill needs to be paid. Even salaries need to be taken care of. Paul talks about that in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those that labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So the men that labor in preaching and teaching have often in the history of the church been financially supported by the congregation, and their needs and their family's needs are regular, and so our giving should be regular. Now I'm not necessarily saying we must give something every week. Some people aren't paid regularly. They give when they can. Some farmers may only get paid once or twice a year when they take their crops to market, and so they give when they can. But by and large, most of us are paid regularly, and when we're able, we should give regularly. Sixth, sixth principle to guide our giving. Christian giving should be proportionate. Christian giving should be proportionate turn over a few pages to 2nd Corinthians chapter 8 Paul is again speaking about money 2nd Corinthians 8 in this letter Paul is giving extended attention chapters 8 and 9 to the topics of giving and generosity and In chapter 8, he holds up the church in Macedonia, which was much less wealthy than the church in Corinth. And he makes mention in chapter 8, verse 3, that they gave, quote, according to their means. And that's a significant statement for us. And in that statement, I think we see a glimpse of the wisdom of God. Specifically in noting that he didn't give an explicit command about the tithe in the New Testament. 
You see, if we're still bound to give 10%, then some of us might be able to stroke that check and move on as if it had never happened. Some might not even feel the loss of it. But when we're called to give according to our means, that changes things for those that have more money. But it also liberates those that have less. It enables God to get to the heart of the matter. You see, I'll put it another way. Some Christians would be in sin if they only gave 10%, while others would be in sin if they gave all the way up to 10%. That's important. I'll say it again. Some people would be in sin if they only gave 10%, while others would be in sin if they went up to 10%. Our giving is supposed to be sacrificial, and I'll explain that in a few minutes. But for some, merely giving 10% would not be a sacrifice. They could live very comfortably off the 90% and not even miss the 10. Conversely, some people are not in a position financially to give 10% and all. And if they did, they might be neglecting the weightier matters of the law, like caring for their household and their children. Thus, we can see a little glimpse of the wisdom of God in not explicitly retaining the tithing principle. He's more concerned with our heart behind the giving. And by exhorting the Corinthian believers to give according to their means, he's at the same time increasing the obligation upon those with more resources, and he's liberating those that have fewer financial resources. Let's see the wisdom of God in that. Our giving should be proportionate to our income. The more we have, the more we are freed in Christ to be able to give. Next, number seven, Christian giving should be sacrificial. Christian giving should be sacrificial. Right after Paul explains that giving should be proportionate in 8.3, he says that the Macedonians gave beyond their means. They gave super their means, right? Above their means. Now, there's a lot of opinion about there about what that means, and a lot of those opinions are not worth listening to. For example, people out there try to use this verse to get people to do stupid things with their money. They'll say, you need to obey Paul, and you need to give above your means. So you pull out that credit card, and you sow an $8,000 seed in my ministry, and God will bless you. Don't do that. Please don't do that. I don't think that this, this verse means that people gave more than they could reasonably cover. I think Paul is simply saying that they gave until it hurt. Right? They gave until it stung, until they felt the squeeze of it. You see, they loved their neighbors enough to sacrifice until they could feel the sting so that their neighbors could be alleviated of the sting of their suffering. You see that? The Macedonians are loving the people in Jerusalem, financially giving to them. And what they're doing, in effect, is lifting a burden off of the people in Jerusalem and placing it upon themselves. They're bearing one another's burdens with their money. They're loving one another with their money. See, we should be able to do the same with our finances. We should be able to look at our finances, look at our budget... And picture the things that we couldn't buy. Picture the things that we couldn't do. Picture the places that we could not go because we chose instead to give back to the Lord. That's what sacrificial means, right? You're sacrificing something. 
I really wanted to do A, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to scale back and do B so that I could freely give more over here, right? Or I'm going to do B instead of A so that I have a little more margin in my budget so that when things pop up, I can, I can throw some money to the person over here whose washer just blew up and they need a new washing machine, right? So-and-so's transmission went out. I want to be able to help with things like that. Maybe we need to do that. And this, parents, this is a really helpful discipleship tool when we're teaching our children about how to handle money, right? It's very tangible, very rubber meets the road, right? Son, I really, I really know that you'd like to go back to you know, Disney World again this year, but your mother and I have prayed about it, and what we're going to do is instead take some of that money and, and give it to the Lord. So we'll, do, we'll, do, we'll scale back a little bit this year. That's self-sacrifice. I know we could use a new car, but we've decided to fix this one up and run it for a few more years so that we can be more generous over here. Right? A strategy for the kingdom. And it's a vivid way for parents to show their children the value of Christian sacrifice for the sake of others. We're training our children and we're training ourselves in the art of sacrificing short-term pleasure for the sake of some long-term goal. Our giving should be sacrificial. Number eight, Christian giving should be administered properly. Christian giving should be administered properly. Paul says at the end of chapter eight that the brothers ought to be sent ahead to arrange for the gift so that it could be handled properly. And we should make similar steps to make sure our giving is handled properly. That's why at this church we have counters and we have deacons and we have a finance team and we have audits and we have all sorts of things. Redundancy, transparency, accountability. That's for everyone's safety. It's just wisdom. But it also highlights the primacy of the local church in all of this. Right? Paul doesn't say, take your money and go find poor people and just give it to them. Right? You're free to do that. But that's not what we're called to do. At least not first. Ordinarily. Our place of giving to God. Should first and foremost be our local church. In Galatians 6.6. 6, Paul writes to the churches of Galatia saying. Let the one who is taught the word. Share all good things with the one who teaches. Right? The, the principle is clear. Where you're first fed is where you should first give. Where you are first fed is where you should first give. It's perfectly lawful to give above and outside of that. We are free in Christ to bless the numerous parachurch organizations, the charities. We're free to give to them. But we ought to first give to our local body where we have covenanted together and where we are first fed. I won't linger on this point because it leads to the next principle, which is number nine. Giving is personal. Giving is personal. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. It says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not under compulsion. We must each decide in our heart how much we are to give. And that's 
very important. You see, Christian giving is not a tax on the church member. Right? And it's not membership dues so that you could receive services rendered, right? I pay you a dollar, you preach to me. Right? You're getting shortchanged. No. This is a reciprocal like service of love and blessing. This is a this is the mysterious way that God has so worked it out. He works in our heart, stirs us to be generous. We give because of that giving. Thanksgiving results. The church should not in any way be out there twisting people's arms, manipulating people into giving. Right? It's easy to do. You've probably seen it. Every health and prosperity gospel preacher on TV can do it. They've got to be good at it, otherwise they wouldn't be on TV very long. You have all seen, I know you have, it's been on TV for 15 years, the depressing puppy commercials late at night with Sarah McLaughlin playing in the background, right? And they slowly pan in on the little puppy, and you're crying, you can't sleep anymore, and you're tired, so you're not thinking straight. You really want to open up your wallet and give to the puppy, right? That's emotional manipulation, but the reason the commercial is still on the air for all these years is because it works, right? It's easy to manipulate people into opening their pocketbooks, and the church should have nothing to do with that. We must each decide in our hearts how much we should give, and then we should do that without compulsion, right? Not even your pastor. Your pastors should not be telling you, oh, you made that much this year? Oh, yeah, you need, to, you need to step that up a little bit. You need to be, you, need, you ought to be up here. That's not my job. It's not a pastor's job. I'm tempted to say something here that Augustine said, even though it can be used wrongly. Augustine said in a sermon, he said, love God and do what you want. Love God and do what you want. That's the doctrine of Christian liberty in seed form right there, which I won't go into tonight, maybe another night. But the principle is biblical and sound. If you love God, if you truly love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then you will seek to avoid anything that he has prohibited, and you will seek to endeavor to pursue all the things that he commands. And within the bounds of that framework, loving him by avoiding sin and Pursuing righteousness within the bounds of that framework, you have freedom according to your conscience. If you want to give to any lawful charity, you have freedom to do that. If you want to give anonymously, you have freedom to do that. If you want to give an extra amount this month, great, you have freedom to do that. If providentially you can't give a penny this month, that's fine. You are free in Christ. You are not more loved by God or less loved by God because of your giving. Love God, do what you want, because our giving should be personal, not coerced. Number 10, Christian giving should be cheerful. Christian giving should be cheerful. Paul says, each one of us must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This is the tough one, right? Most of us know that God's, God expects us to give. 
give regularly, give sacrificially, but cheerfully, that's the hard one, right? Sin still remains in my heart. It's difficult for me to be joyful about giving away the thing that brings me so much joy. I want my money because my money equals my, my satisfaction, right? I can go buy what I want. I can go do what I want. I can go do this, I can do that. It hurts. It stings when I have to give. We all know that it's good for us to do this, right? It's kind of like fasting. We can say, yeah, I can, in the abstract, affirm the goodness of that, but that's hard. I, I don't know that I'm going to actually do that. It's like the spiritual equivalent of eating our broccoli, right? I know I should do it. I tell my children they should definitely do it. I don't like broccoli. We're called instead to be overflowing with joy at the opportunities we have to give to others. Praising God because he has given us the means to be able to meet the needs that others have. Have you ever thought about it like this? Right? God wants to bless this person over here. And because he loves you, he's going to make you a part of the mechanism of him dispensing his blessings to someone else. You get to be a part of the fun. We become the vehicle of material blessings being passed on to others. You say, Pastor, what? I, I don't, I, you could just call it giving fun, right? That doesn't seem right. I don't feel this way. I'm not as cheerful as I ought to be. In fact, I'm not really cheerful at all. And I don't really like writing that check. I find it hard to give regularly. I don't like to forego something I want so that others might be comforted. I don't like spending, I like spending my money on me. I worked hard for it, right? It's very American, right? I worked hard, this is my money, my American dream. Well, that leads to my final principle tonight, number 11. Christian giving starts with grace and it ends with thanksgiving. Christian giving starts with grace and ends with thanksgiving. See, there's a chain in Paul's arguments I want us to see. Paul sets for us a clear foundation in chapter 8, verse 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus knows that we are greedy, stingy people who don't give cheerfully and don't want to be sacrificial. We cling to our money. We cling to our comfort and our security. and We can't stand it that the preacher is up there pointing it out. But Christ did not cling to his riches. In fact, he willingly came down and he gave them up. He didn't have a big house. In fact, he didn't have a house at all. He was dependent upon others for the place to lay his head. He didn't have a huge bank account or a huge portfolio. In fact, he worked as a lowly carpenter. He was content with little to nothing. He didn't have the security, right, the safety net of a huge bag of wealth. Rather, he gave it up. He willingly sacrificed himself in the place of sinners like me and like you, highlighting the poverty that he had in the eyes of the world. But through his poverty, we can become rich. 
You see, we have, by faith in Christ, access to every spiritual blessing that we need for life and godliness. And even more, we have the security of knowing that all things work together for our good. Right? No rough patch, no hard time, no downsizing, no layoffs can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is the grace that is foundational to Paul's arguments. And when we, when we understand this grace, it produces within us a heart of gratitude. A heart overflowing with gratitude to God for the gracious gifts that he's given to us in Jesus Christ. Grace leads to gratitude. And from that position of gratitude, we're then, our hearts are overflowing and we want to give. Our heart of gratitude overflows into all areas of our life, including finances. We're not stingy with our money because we know Christ hasn't been stingy with us. We're not overprotective of our wealth because Christ has not been overprotective with his. We're generous to others because Christ has first been generous to us. Grace leads to gratitude, leads to giving. But the chain doesn't stop there. You see, Christ's graces lead to our gratitude, which motivates our giving, which results in thanksgiving to God. Paul explains that. Look at chapter 9. Verses 10 through 12, he says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying needs of the saints, but is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. You see, it all starts out with God and it all ends with God. God shows us grace, he fills our heart with gratitude, he motivates our giving, which results in the thanksgiving of others to God for his gracious provision. Grace, gratitude, giving, thanksgiving. So as we conclude tonight, let us use this paradigm to lead us to the table of God. His gracious provision of Christ in our place, illustrated at this table, should stir our hearts to gratitude, which moves us to give as we're able to the end of his praise being offered by thankful hearts. This table is open to any who have received Christ by faith. If you're marked by the fruits of discipleship seen in Acts chapter 2, that is, devotion to the apostolic teaching found in God's word and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers and we invite you to come but if you have not yet come to faith and united with the local body of christ then we encourage you to be reconciled to christ first and then join us i will pray and then our table servants will come holy father and god of all grace we praise you and thank you for the grace that we have first tasted because of the work of Jesus Christ, our very bread of life. Please feed us this night. Strengthen us. Pick us up where we are weak. To the end of your glorious praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Table servants, please come.